0: One of the signs of getting older is... is I no longer understand much of Saturday Night Live. I, I remember when Saturday Night Live started. I was in Austin at the University of Texas, and we would urgently sit around the TV in our apartment and watch those first episodes, and we thought it was so funny. And and even when we didn't like it, it was still a part of our culture. After all, we were the Saturday Night Live group. And And, and then as I got older, over time, more and more of the jokes just, didn't quite connect. I didn't recognize the names. I certainly had not heard of the musical acts. So much of what goes on in Saturday Night Live today, I I just don't. I'm 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 old. I just I just don't get much of what's going on in Saturday Night Live, which is is true of so much of broadcast TV. So that I Julie and I have now crossed over uh, one of the great borders of old age into watching. Public TV more at night. I, we, we we're watching things like The American Experience, which which I would have never thought I would watch. I mean, I'm 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 way too hip for that. But but I just don't understand so much of it. So last night we watched a recording of an American Experience, but it it struck a nerve because it was about. Woodstock. Now that is when I was growing up. And Woodstock was an incredibly significant thing in my generation. If you don't know, if you're too young, if you've only heard of it, it it was a rock concert in 1969 that it's estimated between 400 and 500,000 young people came to for three and a half days of nonstop rock and folk music. It was a turning point in a generation in many ways, and it was uh, an event that shaped a generation. It was in the context of the anti-war movement from Vietnam. There was huge distrust among young people and those who were being drafted. Many were running off to Canada to avoid the draft because they didn't believe in the war in Vietnam. And then there was the whole drug culture and the hippie movement, the long hair and the, the drug use and, and rock and roll had taken on a whole new shape. And, and it all kind of came together on that farm in upstate New York in what we called Woodstock. The thing that was amazing about the American experience talking about Woodstock is they interviewed many who had attended and to hear those who attended it it was an event of great virtue. They talked about how their generation came together and took a stand together and 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 the thing that was was particularly interesting is that that there really was peace the whole time. People got along with each other. They didn't have to call in the police. Um, it was a, a, a concert several days, the first night literally all night of music in which they, they celebrated music and peace and love and drugs and nudity and all kinds of other things. So it, it just struck me as odd that they those who attended felt like they had accomplished so much by being there. Uh, What they accomplished is they went to a long concert where because of a last-minute venue change, they didn't get fences built, so no one had to pay for the tickets. And because so many came, no one had to pay for the food. And because there was so much chaos, no one was controlling the events, and there was nudity and drug usage and music. And those who attended celebrated themselves, but ironically, with no real responsibility. They, they left an absolute mess. The people that came said you couldn't believe the stench of those fields. The, the fields were destroyed, and... and It was just funny to me that those who attended felt like they had accomplished so much good when the real heroes, in my opinion, were the people in the community who, in spite of all that they were doing, helped feed them and were gracious hosts and treated them so well. Woodstock was a crazy event in the context of a society that was in many ways tearing apart largely over Vietnam, but over many other factors in our culture. And in 1969 after that, uh, um, excuse me, that was the year Richard Nixon started his presidency, who would ultimately end the war in Vietnam, and things finally started settling down after that. Many have made the connection to that era today because there is so much disunion in our society, there is is so much anger, there is so much division, And, and there is this huge search for personal identity and personal meaning for people. There is this incredible desire to find ourselves and to reshape our culture and and. We see much, so much fear and anger and expressions of distrust, and many are, frankly, frankly very scared. Which drew me to Psalm chapter 2, the second psalm of the Psalter in the Old Testament. It begins with a, a famous expression, Why did the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? Why is there so much antagonism? Why is the world in so much turmoil, and why is there so much anger? Verse 2 continues, The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. There is this, this movement in the context of the psalm in which the people of God, the nation of Israel feels attacked from all sides. And many Christians that you interview today will express a fear of, of the cultural wars closing in against the church and against those who claim Christ. And And there is a bit of a paranoia for many in our world today. And it's one of my favorite posters from my earlier says just because they're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get me uh, the the fa- the fact is that that paranoia has some reason given the legislative changes and 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 quite frankly what you read from so many different sides why is there so much going on in our world that is so filled with antagonism uh, those rebellion quote in verse 3, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. There is this this huge feeling of repression in our world today and and a rebellion against anyone who would limit us and, and cause us to feel as though we are shackled. So, the context of this psalm is one in which the people of God feel as though the world around them is raging and in chaos and angry and speaking out against the Lord's work. Now, scholars view this psalm as what is called a royal psalm, because it was probably written for the coronation of the Davidic king. Whether it was for David originally or Solomon after him, it was a psalm that would have been read when the new king ascended the the throne. Because in the ancient Near East, especially in the nation of Israel, the king was viewed as a representative of God, the Lord Yahweh, king of Israel. And so they would have celebrated his appointment as the king, representing the nation of Israel and serving under the Lord God of Israel. Uh, They would have pointed back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, in which God had spoken through Nathan the prophet to David to tell him that he would begin a, a a kingdom, a reign that would go eternally, that there would always be a son of David who would reign. And Second Samuel 7 showed that David's descendants not only represented the God as over the nation of Israel, but they represented God in a special way because of the Davidic covenant, which would ultimately be fulfilled in the Messiah who would come many years later. So, the setting of this psalm, in many ways, would have felt like today. Chaotic, angry, uh, difficult. In verses 4 through 6 of Psalm 2, the Lord responds. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. The attention turns now to the ultimate king, the God of all the universe who sits in heaven and sees all the activity against his people and he laughs a scoffing laugh. Now some have seen this as as harsh and care, without caring. But I, I have a picture for you that I think fits this perfectly. Many of you know that the first thing Julie and I did after we married was buy a child care center in beautiful East Texas. We had, I think, 65 children there all day, had eight employees, and and it we were 22 and 23 and and had absolutely no idea what we were doing. But but we did a great job, I'm sure. And, and Julie was the sec- two-year-old teacher. We only accepted children were two-year-old or older, and so we had the maximum of 11 two-year-olds, and Julie taught them for nine hours a day. She was in her own small room with 11 two-year-olds all day long. And sh- that's when I realized she was a child whisperer because, because she actually brought order. In the chaos there was. I'll never forget that two-year-old class because when Julie and I would take turns of course having childhood diseases so in the morning we would decide who was sickest and when she was sickest I would have to cover the two-year-old class and and I'll never forget that there was little Christy who was about this tall and wore overalls and was a little bit of a vacuum cleaner as we would eat lunch she would look at every kid at the table and and point at their food on their plate and say is that yours? Are you going to eat that? And if they paused for a second, it was gone because Christy just had an appetite that never ended the the two year old class was truly something special and and the great threat of a two-year-old in that class when they got mad at Julie or at me or someone else. When, when they, their fury was so overwhelming that it changed their facial expression and the anger totally consumed them, they would look at the adult and shake their little tiny fingers and say, you are not my friend anymore. And I got to tell you, we'd laugh. I mean, it, 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 they viewed it as a horrible, horrible threat and, and pronunciation from, to them, they had just slammed us to the floor like a main event wrestler on Saturday night. But in reality, because they were two, it just kind of came off as funny. I mean, we still cared for them. They were great kids. It's just that when a two-year-old's really mad at you and shaking that little finger and telling you they're not your friend anymore, it's just kind of you kind of scoff. You kind of, and I think that's the picture of God's response to us when we shake our fists at Him. It's not a scoffing that's full of derision and hatred. It's 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 just that that laughter because quite frankly it comes off kind of silly when when we humans seek to rebel against the will of god when we resist the will of god when when we explain to god that he's not our friend anymore uh, he still loves us but he scoffs and rebukes and when he does discipline with his wrath it's terrifying and, and notice in the context of this enthronement, his answer is, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. God is saying that the nation of Israel, at the time of David, David and his descendants having been recipients of the Davidic covenant, were the anointed, the chosen by God to rule over his people, and as such, anybody who went, gave themselves to fight against Israel was actually fighting against God. He, he, he let it be known that because of his great love for his people to resist his people, and especially his anointed king, is to resist him as well and will enjoy the wrath that he has from heaven in verses 7 through 9 the idea is carried forward as he goes into detail in announcing his son I will proclaim the Lord's decree he said to me you are my son today I've become your father Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Upon upon the ascension to the throne by the Davidic king, God pronounces that this day... You are appointed as my son. Now, ironically, in the ancient Near East, many kings declared that they were deity. Uh, the Egyptian pharaoh, for instance, was proclaimed himself to be a god. A Roman Caesars would cl- proclaim to be gods. Here, there is not the calling to deity, but there is the call to a special relationship to God as his appointed heir, as the one who serves under God, over God's people and at the point of receiving the throne God proclaimed to the davidic king you are my son and i i will bless your service and i will bless your reign and and i will give you great possessions and a great inheritance and that was certainly true under david and solomon before the kingdom fell apart, that God, in honor of the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7, blessed the people and those kings mightily goes on to say, you, the sun, will break them with a rod of iron, and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Uh, Alan Ross in his three-volume commentary on the book of Psalms believes that this is an analogy to what the Egyptian pharaoh would do. The Egyptian pharaoh had his own deity as well as proclaim himself to be a god. And in that temple, it is said that he had uh, pottery votives for each of the cities that were under his reign. And those votives represented his kingdom as he would go in to worship his God and probably himself as well. And and it is said that when one of those cities rebelled against Pharaoh, that he would take the clay votive that represented that city and he would crush it before his deity to demonstrate that he would crush any rebellion throughout the empire of Egypt. And Ross says that this is an analogy to that, that that anyone who is under the reign of God's appointed king who rebels against him will also, if you will, have his clay pot burst, not by the king, but by God himself. So that you see this incredible ceremony of the ascendancy to the throne in Jerusalem by the Davidic king and this pronunciation from God of his representing him. And then verses 10 through 12, as a consequence, the world is warned. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate His rule with trembling. First, notice that because it is God's nation whom He has chosen the nation of Israel, the first responsibility is to respond to God. Israel was appointed by God to be a testimony to the nations and a means by which the nations could come to know God. And so the first responsibility of those nations around would be to turn to God, Lord Yahweh of Israel, and celebrate His rule. And then in doing that, pay homage to the son. Kiss the son or he'll be angry and your way will lead to destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Uh, God warns the surrounding nations that if, if they do not honor his king that they have the potential for suffering the wrath of that king and ultimately the wrath of God as well. And the psalm ends with a blessing, a beatitude, if you will. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. God declares that anyone who submits to the Davidic king has the opportunity to have the blessing of God because, not because of the inherent value of the king, but because of the one who has chosen him and placed him on that throne, and that his value is what, his reign is what they should submit to. So when you read this psalm, you get a glimpse into the nation of Israel and of the role of the king in representing the nation and the role of the nation in representing God to the world around. But you know that that's not all that is in this psalm. You understand that this psalm means much more. This psalm is alluded to or quoted 18 times in the New Testament, more often than any psalm in the Psalter, And it is repeatedly applied to the life of Christ, showing that the Davidic king is ultimately feel, fulfilled in the descendant who is Jesus, the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, and showing how this psalm predicted what his role would be. Let me walk you back through that. Uh, Acts chapter 4, uh, Peter is preaching to the early church. Verse 24, when they heard him, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, your father David, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus. The very beginning of the church, they understood that the ultimate expression of the rebellion of the world against the act of God was the crucifixion of the Savior. And they quoted these first verses of Psalm chapter 2 showing that ultimately they pointed to the time when God would send His ultimate anointed one to reign and the peoples would conspire against Him and crucify Him on the cross. The, The early church saw that Jesus was the point of the Davidic throne in many ways, that the the throne of David was just a foretaste of the one whom God would send to reign over his people and bring what a human king could not bring, uh, the peace and righteousness for which we all long. Verses 7, the announcement of the Son you are my son, today I become your father, is used repeatedly in the New Testament. And it's interesting in multiple times in Jesus' life. In Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus submits to baptism by John the baptizer, verse 17, and a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. In other words, the when you read the descriptions in the synoptic gospels of Jesus' baptism, he hears a voice in which the father quotes from Psalm 2 and says, you are my only begotten. You are my unique son. Today, I recognize you as my anointed one. Then in Matthew chapter 17 one of the other great events of Jesus' life, what we call the transfiguration. You remember it's toward the end of Jesus' life. He takes the apostles to a mountain, and then he separates away his three closest friends, the apostles, and goes further up to pray. And all at once, he is transformed with the brightness of light, and his clothing becomes like glowing with light and Elijah and Moses come to speak. In verse 5 of Matthew 17, it says, While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered him in a voice from the cloud, said, This is my son, whom I am loved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. He is called out as the descendant of David from Psalm 2 at his baptism. He is called out as the descendant of David at His transfiguration, when those great representatives of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, are there, again the Father proclaims that this is the Son, the King, Peter will refer to that event in his own life in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow clearly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to Him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love, with Him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice. That came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter uh, is so moved by that event that he he speaks of it in his second epistle as an opportunity when he was witnesses. He and the others were witnesses of God speaking and anointing Jesus as that special born one. So it's it's quoted in the baptism, it's quoted in the transfiguration, but it's also quoted in relation to Jesus' resurrection. Paul is preaching in Pisidian, Antioch, in Acts chapter 13, verse 32, he says, We tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors. He has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus as is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I become your father. The Apostle Paul shows that at the resurrection it was the ultimate pronunciation of Jesus' role as the anointed one of God because it was not just to sit on a throne, not just be anointed with oil, but to accomplish victory over death as the anointed one of Christ and the ultimate fulfillment of what God had in store for His people and for all mankind. The book of Hebrews, will quote it again. For which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I become your father? Or the writer of Hebrews says that this is a unique announcement from God that Jesus is begotten of God in a unique way. Like no other man or no other heavenly being, he, He is one who is by His very nature one with God. That's the emphasis of only begotten, unique in his his nature, equal to God. Just as a, a son has the same nature of the father, he is fully human. If his father is human, so Jesus as the son of God is fully God. And he is, as the son of God, is the one who sits and reigns on the throne. But interestingly, this is not the only way this psalm is alluded to. If you remember back in verse 9, speaking of the Messiah, it says, you will break them with a rod of iron, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Three different times the book of Revelation quotes from that to demonstrate what God through Jesus will ultimately work in the earth. Revelation 2.27, that one will rule them with an iron scepter, and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father." Chapter two, Revelation 12, verse 5. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Revelation 19, 15. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will ruin them, rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. In other words, as John the Apostle is writing these revelations about our Lord in the last days, he He, too, points to the verbiage of Psalm chapter 2 and says that it will ultimately be fulfilled in the last days when Jesus as Messiah returns and brings the justice and the peace that we all long for. In other words, Psalm 2 doesn't just point to the Davidic king who ruled in Israel at at the time of the United Kingdom. It doesn't even just point to Jesus' reign today as the Messiah who was proclaimed to be the Son of God at His baptism and His, the transfiguration and His resurrection. But ultimately, Psalm 2 points to the fact that Jesus, as that anointed one of God... Will bring justice and peace that we all long for now. So blessed are all who take refuge in him. Uh, we we live an incredibly divisive day, and and people are fearful and 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 divided, and angry, and struggling in so many ways because there is an absence of trust of all of our institutions. Sadly, even including the church, there is uh, a fear of evil and chaos. We, we live in a day when the nations are raging, and, and you can sense it. As you watch the news and as you read the paper and and you speak to your friends, there is this chaotic nervousness today because you wonder who's in charge. And Psalm 2 spoke to Israel in the time of David and said, I, the Lord, have placed my begotten on the throne, and he will be an expression of my will today. But for you and me, Psalm 2 points to the ultimate son of God and son of David who sits on the throne and will ultimately sit as the messianic king in Zion and bring the justice and peace that we all long for. That all those who resist him will be like children shaking their little fingers at the powerful God, and ultimately He will bring the righteousness and and goodness that the human heart so desperately needs. Uh, We live in a time when things just seem really fractured, and we don't have a music festival to go to to make it all okay. We... Instead, are huddled in our homes because of COVID in in fear of disease and fear of everything else. And, And the psalmist says, take refuge in the one who rules. Find your peace in the anointed one of God. Because while no one else can control all that's going on, he is yet on his throne. And as the anointed one of God, He will bring that goodwill, that righteousness, that justice, that peace that we long, long for. It's it's good to keep up with the news. It's it's good to read what's going on. It's good to uh, get involved in, in the discussion of, of the issues of the day and, and seek to know how we best should respond. But But as believers, as followers of Christ, we do well to be reminded that ultimate peace comes from that king, that one ruler who is the very son of God and who gave his life to solve the need of the evil in the world today and was resurrected to demonstrate his victory over it. because of his unique character as the Son of God and his unique work as the Savior of the world, he is the only place our hearts will ultimately find refuge and strength and peace and direction. Take refuge in him. Governments disappoint. Friends disappoint. The, the world around us will, will never quite be enough, but Jesus always is. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that by your sovereign will, you have placed your son to represent you to all the world. And while he is not yet on the throne as he will one day be on earth, he is yet your perfect son and king and the fulfillment of all you promised through David. Father, forgive us that we can so quickly get our eyes focused on the turmoil around us that we forget the one who is ultimately in charge. Cause us to find refuge in him, strength in him, and peace in him so that we might serve you well in a world that is broken and needy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.